Sunday Dispatch. You're listening to Sunday Dispatch on FBI Radio 94.5. My name's Lindsay Riley. Each episode, we take a closer look at news stories from around the world and at home, their social and political complexities, and often examine the way they're covered in mainstream media. In September 2022, Chile went to the polls to vote on a new constitution to throw out the one enforced by the military dictatorship and install a new one that had been written through an elected constituent assembly with the support, seemingly, of large amounts of the population. Despite the very positive potential nature of the new constitution, it failed. To understand why and talk about how progressive social movements deal with failure and try to enact transformative new demands, we're joined by Dr. Camila Vergara, political and legal theorist, historian and journalist from Chile who followed closely the events of the last few years. Camila, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me in the show. The Chilean military dictatorship from 1973 to 1990 under Augusto Pinochet was one of the bloodiest periods in Chilean history and South America as a whole. Through it, neoliberalism was implemented more violently than perhaps anywhere else in the world. A sham election overthrew Chile's constitution, implemented a new one, one that stands more or less still to this day. Camila, how important was the constitution to the rule of the Pinochet dictatorship, and thus why is it so important for Chile to replace it with a new constitution today? Well, the constitution in Chile, which was, as you well said, uh, imposed uh, during the dictatorship, uh, was the way to codify, to put into legal uh, terms, the neoliberal reforms that were being implemented uh, to uh, help uh, privatize uh, everything, uh, all the uh, public industry to um, make the state minimal, basically. Uh, to outsource and privatize all uh, basic services uh, and to uh, implement a very experimental kind of uh, economic uh, package. Uh, So the constitution allowed for uh, this to uh, happen and then it froze it, basically. Uh, It uh, put some uh, procedures and rules in the constitution that wouldn't allow for a government to intervene in the economy and change the economic model. So even though uh, during the democracy after 1990, we uh, returned to democracy, to electoral politics, uh, even though we returned to that, uh, the, um, and, it, and the constitution was reformed many times, the core of the constitution uh, was allowed to endure. Uh, so therefore, we have the pension system, the healthcare system, the education system is all private and is uh, very precarious. In a way, it allows for uh, only the rich to have a good quality, access to good quality services, and uh, the rest of the population uh, is only um, has only available the public services that are underfunded and are have been actually privatized. Uh, the majority of them. So therefore, the only way to change that is to change the constitution. And um, we uh, we endured a constituent process that failed, uh, even though the constitution that was written, the draft constitution, was one of the most progressive constitutions ever written. Mm. So you mentioned that there have been some potential reforms, you know, since Pinochet was removed from power in 1990, and that they were 
somewhat ineffective. So what does the limits of those reforms tell us about how much the balance of elite power in Chile, how much has it really changed since Pinochet was removed from power? The balance of power hasn't changed much. Uh, as I said, the, the constitution uh, has some rules inside. So the, the ones that were reformed away uh, were what, what, what we call the authoritarian enclaves, which way basically uh, some of the senators were appointed uh, by Pinochet and were uh, senators for life. That, uh, that was eliminated, uh, the electoral system that um, allowed for a, an over-representation of the right-wing coalition also was eliminated. However, uh, when uh, it was eliminated, it was already around 20 years into the electoral politics, and uh, that meant that the left-wing coalition had moved towards uh, the center-right, if you will, and today we have a political party spectrum uh, that uh, is a very right-wing. There is a neoliberal consensus uh, that basically per uh, endures. Um, and uh, what one of the one of the things that makes the constitution neoliberal is that uh, it put uh, fiscal responsibility and uh, the uh, the uh, power of the state to intervene in the economy uh, is limited. Um, the executive power has complete a monopoly over the uh, spending money, so over the budget. And uh, therefore, any law that wants to change the model needs to come from the president and then be ratified by Congress. So you need both powers, the executive and the uh, legislative power in a supermajority fashion to be in agreement uh, with any changes or investment, new investment that the uh, state uh, undergoes. So therefore, no government has been able to dismantle this. Uh, and the majority of uh, left-wing governments have been in power, uh, they have been and wanted to resolve some basic questions, for example, transport, they have outsourced it and uh, allowed for private industry to come in and uh, develop, you know, a transportation systems uh, that the public sector cannot. Mm. And on that private, um, those private business, what about the business elite in Chile? Like what sort of sectors are holding I guess, more power or influence? And has that changed much since the dictatorship? And is it mostly national business power or is it transnational as well? So um, the, the transnational corporations are the owners of around uh, 60 to 70 percent of the uh, mining industry in Chile. Uh, so in a way, the ownership of natural resources have been uh, privatized or opened for private business, the majority of them transnational. So this is one issue uh, which is uh, bolstered by the trade agreements. Um, however, the uh, what happens, one of the most uh, strongest sectors is the pension system. So um, there was a clever way to uh, develop the uh, capital market in Chile, which was almost non-existent at the time in the 80s. Uh, so the uh, brother of the ex-president Sebastián Piñera, which is a, one of the, we have had him twice uh, in, in during this uh, 40 years out of uh, uh, democracy, 30 years. And the, this José Piñera was the one who developed uh, the first uh, private 
a pension system of the world. So basically came up with the idea that instead of giving pensions to all in a universal manner, as a, the majority of uh, countries in Europe uh, or the United States, uh, everyone, every worker should save for himself or for herself. So therefore everybody would have a, a private individual a savings account. And we would be forced uh, to deposit a percentage of the wages into these accounts. And then you would have um, uh, companies uh, uh, administering these funds. Today, the funds are so massive. I mean, imagine all of the workforce is forced to save uh, that uh, basically these uh, administrative companies, the AFP, which we call it, um, uh, they are moving more than 60% of the GDP today of Chile. So in a way, they it, it created a massive uh, amount of liquidity uh, for the capital markets that would go back into the system uh, via uh, credits, uh, very uh, low uh, rate credits to the companies. However, it would not, it doesn't work like a pension system. Uh, basically, it forces the workers to save for themselves and for the companies and allows the companies to use those savings while the working is worker is it's working the worker. Uh, but at the end of the of the of the life, in a way, to the retirement, uh, the pension system doesn't allow for dignified pensions. So a uh, 30% of uh, retirees are in poverty today in Chile. And uh, the majority of the uh, elderly workforce is in a very precarious situation. Uh, however, this massive amount, this pool amount, this pool of money keeps um, uh, being enlarged every year, uh, benefiting the big corporations that are allowed to access uh, this money at very low rates. Mm, somewhat similar to our superannuation program in Australia, but I guess on an even more unequal scale. And I guess we see that the difference between the implementation of neoliberalism in, you know, richer countries and poorer countries. Um, Chile has obviously, you know, been strangled by neoliberalism for a very long time. There's been resistance, you know, um, throughout the years, but something on a really new scale seemed to arise on the streets in 2019. So what specifically set off the protests in 2019? Well, like many protests before uh, the 2019 one around in, in, in the in the region, especially in Latin America, uh, was the hike on fuel prices. Basically, uh, the government of Sebastián Piñera, this uh, billionaire uh, who was president of Chile for the second time, um, he uh, allowed for a hike of 30 pesos, which is cents really, uh, of the metro fare. Okay, and the metro. Uh, it's a hybrid company. So basically, it's a company that is private, but but the director is managed is is appointed by the by the state. So kind of it's a a, a very strange situation uh, in which uh, the prices are allowed to be uh, increased by by the government, but it's run uh, as a private business. So this uh, the metro station in Santiago, the capital, uh, increased the fares, and that meant that uh, the, for the working class families, this was a huge uh, increase. Uh, because of every ticket, right? If every day uh, you get a 30 pesos increase. And the uh, high school students who were not actually subject to this increase because they have a special fare, 
uh, but basically their families were impacted, they decided to start protesting. So um, one of the most emblematic um, high schools, uh, uh, El Instituto Nacional, uh, which is a high school that um, uh, many ex-presidents have been uh, uh, alumnus of this of this high school, they started this uh, civil disobedience campaign to evade the fair as another way to fight. So they started evading and going in mass into the metro stations and uh, uh, jumping the turnstiles and um, calling uh, or also uh, or on their adults, you know, uh, to do that. And uh, uh, and it was basically a snowballing effect um, of other uh, high schools uh, also uh, going into this uh, civil disobedience campaign. And at the end, uh, lots of workers and regular folk basically just uh, jumping the turnstiles and the government was unable to really stop this movement. Um, so by the end uh, of around two weeks of, um, of direct action, uh, the government decided because they couldn't stop the students from going into the uh, the subway without paying to close the subway stations. So um, it's, it's still being investigated after uh, three years. Uh, but um, there was a burning of more than 20 uh, metro stations in Santiago uh, after they were closed. So nobody knows who burned the metros. Uh, what happened is that the metro stations were closed. The working classes were returning uh, from their uh, day uh, of labor to their houses, and these stations were uh, closed, so they had to walk home. And so on the, on a Friday of the 18th of October, uh, all men, there were many people in the street uh, protesting and basically flooding, uh, flooding the streets uh, in protest of this hike. And in that moment, when the um, metro stations were set ablaze, the government took out uh, the military for the first time uh, after the dictatorship to uh, repress the social unrest. And this is, was the beginning of uh, uh, an escalation between the government and the social movement uh, to uh, open up uh, a constituent process that people were on the streets uh, asking at the beginning uh, for specific demands like the pension system and the healthcare system and the education system to be reformed. However, quickly uh, people understood that these fights uh, cannot be fought alone, basically, that you needed to change the matrix, the model. Um, and the constitution and therefore immediately the movement started uh, asking for a constituent assembly and the uh, government was cornered and uh, was uh, forced to deliver on that promise even if in a, a very imperfect kind of process mm. in that movement to articulate and push for uh, a constituent assembly and a new constitution there's this really interesting sort of social movement happening on the streets, these local democratic councils, which you've written about, called cabildos, which began to put forward demands. Can you tell us a little bit about what they were like, um, what sort of decentralized democratic possibilities they offered to Chileans, you know, looking to take their political and social agency back? Well, the, the history of Chile is very interesting in this regard because uh, from the very beginning, from the origin of the country, in the moment uh, that uh, the colonial power, Spain, uh, had a crack in the system, basically, and uh, Chile could uh, declare independence. In that moment, there was a tension between the centralizing forces of the uh, landed oligarchy, or oligarchy and the commercial oligarchy and the decentralizing forces of the small towns. 
So these small towns, the moment that there was a vacuum of power, uh, immediately came together and created these cabildos. So uh, in the in the origin of the country, there was a movement of cabildos, of people getting together, of assemblies, uh, neighborhood assemblies in the small towns that wanted a project, a model of country that was decentralized and that's what, that was run from the ground up. Uh, there was a struggle, there was war, and, and, the, and the national centralization tendencies won. And, um, and we ended up here now in this in in this 21st century in which this cabildo movement comes back so the moment that uh, the metro stations were set ablaze and people were were protect were uh, protesting in the streets uh, the majority of people we need to understand that after so many years of dictatorship uh, people are afraid of their neighbors because they are afraid that the neighbors will tell on them and that the political police will come for them. Okay, there is something ingrained, you know, in our, uh, it's almost epigenetic at this point. Uh, so basically people are very afraid of each other. Uh, but in that moment, because the, the media, which is uh, controlled by uh, the national oligarchy, 100%, was not reporting on the uprising, was only reporting on uh, the... Um, the looting of some supermarkets or like very violent uh, marginal things that were happening, but not the movement as a whole. So people went out to the street for the first time uh, to the squares, to the public squares of their neighborhoods to figure out what was happening. So people met to get met, met uh, and met their, their neighbors for the first time. And in that moment, something happened. People, I said, they they said they, they were awake for the first time. They understood that their own problems, individual problems of debt, of lack of education, of poor education, of a lack of resources, uh, of a predatory, you know, banking uh, system, uh, everything was not an individual fault, but was a systemic, a structural problem. So therefore, people came together and these cabildos were born again. So people just coming to the streets and to their local uh, plazas, we call it the squares, uh, they started a, a meeting and assembly in the squares, thousands of them throughout Chile. And um, this is a, gives a, a potential for a decentralized state. And actually that also went into the draft constitution. Uh, one of the provisions of the draft constitution was that uh, neighborhood assemblies would be recognized and that the governors at the local level would respect that organization. And moreover, they would give them the power to veto or initiate any policy or regulation from the ground up, and that, that would be respected by the mayor. Uh, of course, the details were left to the uh, legislator to do, uh, so it was kind of a potential um, a, a system uh, that was decentralized, uh, but it was very promising. So in a way, again, uh, the uh, the failure of this draft constitution was, again, kind of a, a part of this tension between the nationalizing, uh, centralizing forces and the decentralizes more communal uh, kind of forces that are uh, prevalent in Chilean history. Yeah, it's really amazing. You see the way that political action can mend these social bonds between people, you know, neighbors that were previously scared of each other due to previous repression, you know, coming together to forge new paths together. Um, I believe maybe you were involved with the Cabildos in some capacity, Camilla. Can you talk about what your experience in them was like? Yes. So thank you. Yeah. Uh, so uh, 
part of my my academic work uh, from the very beginning was to figure out a way for Chile to change its constitution in a more democratic manner. And actually, I went uh, to the U.S. around 15 years ago uh, to uh, study constituent processes and to uh, delve into political philosophy and history in order to uh, see what other processes were out there and what would be better. Because a national constituent assembly elected uh, and people uh, coming from political parties being elected, and when political parties are part of the problem, then it doesn't matter if you have a constituent assembly, you have the same people basically participating there and the people at large have no role. So that I wouldn't I wouldn't say is too democratic. So therefore my work has been uh, basically to figure out a more democratic process to change the constitution. So uh, I actually had uh, written a book, Systemic Corruption, uh, Constitutional Ideas for an Anti-Oligarchic Republic. Uh, which um, basically uh, put up a plan in order for a network of primary assemblies uh, to get together basically and uh, draft at least a few articles from below in order to be incorporated into the constitution. So having kind of like a a dual a, a dual task basically the the people would be demanding some of the articles and the constituent assembly that would be elected would be fleshing it out basically and 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 following that command so the moment that the uprising happened i um, translated part of this book make it into a pamphlet customize it to the chilean experience um printed it for free and basically uh, put it up for download so many people downloaded it, uh, and 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 the and the book was very cheap uh, in Chile. Uh, everything pays nineteen percent of a uh, tax sales tax. So therefore, this book was super cheap, and people could afford it. So uh, that was one of the reasons that many people from the popular sectors could actually afford the book, and kind of like a small book that uh, could fit in your pocket. So many of the of, of people that wanted to run had re read the book, and they were inspired by it. So uh, when uh, when they run, uh, many of the uh, cabildos came together and they asked for help in order to coordinate and to have some of their representatives being actually elected. And they were a few of them. And um, um, there was a coalition within the convention, uh, the Coordinadora Plurinacional Popular, the Plurinational Popular uh, Coalition. Uh, and some of them were uh, people that were pro cabildos, basically a part of this network of primary assemblies and that pushed for direct democracy. So uh, part of my labor there was basically to uh, help coordinate uh, some of these cabildos and some of other social movements and other organizations that were prior but were not political that turned political in this moment. Uh, when there were feminist organizations, uh, sports organizations, women's organizations that were a part of like the more um, feeding the people, you know, and taking care of the neighborhood, other kinds of uh, organizations that were not necessarily political, but became very much so. So these people contacted me and I was um, helping them out and figuring out how to connect and how were the rules that they needed to abide by in order to not reproduce the same uh, inequality and domination that we that we see outside, right? That we don't want to replicate the same ideas of the representative system. We don't want to be electing leaders in the cabildos. We want everyone to be leaders. So therefore, you need to have different rules in order to preserve that equality and dismantle these uh, 
forms of inequality that we're used to and we're used to reproducing with, within. So that was part of my role. Yeah, that's really amazing. Um, I want to highlight some of the proposed changes that the Cabildos and the later elected constituent assembly conventions proposed that would have been put in place had the referendum passed. Um, you know, because there were some quite substantial and incredible social political demands in there. You mentioned earlier, Camilla, that potential veto power by neighborhood groups. So what were some victories that could have been won had the constitutional referendum passed? Some of the things that we were pushing for, um, in addition to the decentralization and this power from below uh, in, in an assembly way, uh, was to push for mechanisms of direct democracy. Um, direct democracy that would uh, allow for the organized people to actually have a voice and a vote and push for a reform from below, even if representatives didn't want to. Uh, so, uh, so we petitioned basically, and we were pushing from the very beginning uh, from the social movements and the and the cabildos uh, in the convention in order to for this to be passed. Uh, actually, uh, we participated, and I and I participated uh, directly in five hearings in the convention, um, like expert testimony, in order to um, give arguments to give a direct democratic uh, mechanisms to the people. So one of them was to uh, repeal law. So we have a lot of bad laws in Chile, uh, laws that um, privatize industry that privatize water, right? All these laws, the, all these uh, industries that have been built around basic services are allowed due to uh, legal changes uh, from the past. So this could be repealed. So the people just uh, uh, gathering signatures could uh, put a repeal to for a national referendum, basically, in a national referendum. Uh, and that would allow for the people to be co-authors of the new model in a way, help to repeal laws that are seen as corrupt or unjust. Uh, because if we think about it, uh, if we have a very different type of model and we apply a new one, uh, that is not going to be changed from one day to the next. The dismantling of the old system needs to be gradual and it needs to be piece by piece. So in a way, the people could have also a role in helping dismantle the most uh, egregious, basically, uh, forms of law. Uh, the other one was to be able to actually uh, change the constitution itself. So to gather signatures in order to uh, introduce articles in the new constitution or get rid of articles that they didn't like. Because there were articles that were passed uh, with uh, the uh, support of the right-wing coalition and there were uh, articles that were not passed. For example, the nationalization of the mining industry was not passed. So therefore, all the social uh, and economic rights that were uh, included in the constitution wouldn't have any uh, funding to be materialized. So the people understood that they needed to renationalize copper, for example. So that could be also done through a direct democratic mechanism. Um, and at the end, the final one was to actually call a constituent convention. So not wait for another rupture. Don't wait for another uh, popular uprising when uh, you know the constitution has become oppressive, but to actually allow the people themselves to uh, initiate a new constituent process in a more democratic and um, a st stable manner. Mm. Um, so on September 4 in 2022, 
I think it was 62% of Chilean voters rejected the new constitution in a national referendum or plebiscite. Um, and to those following the process, you know, like myself, I was quite surprised and it seemed by all reporting, previously there had been such widespread agreement by most people in the country that the Pinochet constitution should be replaced. And there had been, you know, and we can argue to what extent um, it may have been, but a participation from popular forces from below, you know, from regular people. And so many of the new rights and changes in the constitution would have radically helped regular people. So why did it fail? And why did it fail so substantially so across pretty much all demographics, it seemed as well? Yes, it was pretty surprising the extent of the rejection vote. Uh, but then if we analyze the context of uh, how it all happened and all went down, it's not that surprising. Uh, so first we have a, a state that didn't, the government didn't, uh, didn't get involved at all in the constituent process. So uh, for our listeners to understand, the state didn't even uh, send a letter to people's houses telling them uh, that there was a constituent process, uh, what was about, right, and what was going to be voted. There was no official information going to people. Uh, the only information that was available uh, was a 30-minute um, TV propaganda uh, that was divided actually in 15 minutes uh, in favor of the Constitution and 15 minutes a rejection of the Constitution. So, um, and of course, the rejection uh, propaganda was uh, had a ninety percent of all the funding, uh, a, and uh, was very um, uh, uniformed in a way that it was. There were uh, uh, advertisement campaigns, you know, and uh, companies hired, and there was a whole slogan, and you know, very well done. Okay. Uh, on the other hand, in in the approval campaign, uh, it was allowed for. Uh, a political parties to participate, but also a, a, a social, so, so a civil society. And so many people wanted to participate that the 15 minutes had to be um, divided into, in, in, into so many different movements that uh, the movements only got seconds in order to uh, get their message across. Actually, I participated directly in this with, uh, we allied our, our committee of the direct, democ direct democracy. We allied ourselves with the committee uh, for the um, human right to water, and we got a grand total of 37 seconds. So every day we had 37 seconds to pass a, a, an advertisement on TV in order to um, educate the people about the Constitution. And therefore, the education of the people was not very thorough. Uh, and, there, and there was no real uh, official information, it was just propaganda from one side and the other. Uh, so um, that was not very effective. The ratings showed that people were, were not really watching it. Uh, people were really disaffected. And on the other hand, there were the uh, kind of uh, extra official propaganda of um, talk shows and other, you know, um, uh, programming on TV. And all of it was against the new constitution.
all of it. So all of the uh, TV channels were saying that basically the constitution was a bad one, was badly written, that the popular sectors that participated, all the independents and these people that were basically not professional politicians didn't know what they were doing. So therefore it was a bad text and um, it was rejected by all the elites uh, during the, the, the time that basically people were supposed to be being educated about this. And um, that created a lot of rejection because people didn't know really for what we were they were voting for. And uh, the Constitution had 399 articles, uh, even for people specialized in a constitutional law like myself. This takes a long time to actually um, uh, process uh, and uh, understand uh, what was uh, inside the Constitution and what was, you know, the the uh, relation between the articles and what really uh, meant and what could really uh, bring. So to ask uh, regular people with a very, you know, that had been subject to a very bad uh, privatized educational system uh, that uh, has brought the uh, pedagogy and education very uh, to, to a very uh, low stance uh, to actually understand that the, the complexity of the constitution and then pronounce themselves as if they want yes or no, uh, is really uh, like a daunting task. You cannot really ask regular people to uh, have an opinion on constitutional law in less than a month with, that, with no information, right? Uh, in addition, uh, the, the government of uh, Gabriel Boric, um, this uh, uh, new left uh, so-called president, uh, was uh, really uh, had a lot of rejection among the popular sectors. So a lot of people voted for him because the other candidates candidate was a Jose Antonio Cast, who uh, was the son of a neo-Nazi soldier that escaped to Chile, and he is the leader of that Republican Party in Chile, which is uh, basically a neo-fascist uh, party. So uh, the it was be, between this guy, neo-fascist, and Gabriel Boric. So many of the people that regularly vote for the left decided to vote for Gabriel Boric, even though they didn't like him. Uh, so he won, uh, but after that, immediately the people became the opposition, basically, and uh, the people rejected his government. Uh, he has an approval rating uh, below 30 uh, percent. So uh, that meant that, that many people went to the uh, polls to vote reject because they rejected the government they rejected the process and the process itself, you know, uh, the cabildos were not really incorporated. Uh, people were not really incorporated in a binding manner. It was only suggestions. Like uh, they had like a mailbox, for example, for suggestions. Uh, send us your, you know, your ideas, kind of thing. So people were very disaffected with the process, so they voted against. Uh, so the problem was that the moment that the uh, the result came out. Uh, the right-wing coalition, which is the pro-Pinochet coalition, uh, immediately claimed that this 62% of rejection of the new constitution was not because they rejected the government or the process, but that they were in favor of keeping uh, the Pinochet constitution and there was a victory for the right-wing coalition. As you mentioned, Camila, a lot of Chile's left social movements did support the current president, Gabriel Boric, when he ran against you know, the neo-fascist candidate cast in the last election, but now it seems many have broke with him. And he seems somewhat delegitimized, I'm not sure, to the extent maybe that a lot of political parties in Chile are across the board. Um, and he also had a part in the original no negotiations from the protests 
to the constituent assembly, I believe, agreeing upon one really important thing that there needs to be a two-thirds majority for everything voted upon, which allowed the possibility of, you know, right-wing minority wreckers to kind of, like, ruin the process. And I guess we see this dance with social movements and political parties all across the South American region as a way sort of movements try to win power and enact new demands. So I'm wondering, is Boric done? Like, is there any reconciliation possible with him, with the left movements in Chile? Or is there a need maybe to... uh, I need perhaps to maybe articulate new forms of political parties in Chile because it doesn't seem that there aren't many strong political parties with grassroots supports in Chile as compared to maybe some other South American countries like Bolivia or Colombia or Brazil where they may not always be totally aligned, the social movements and the political parties. They may have disagreements, but the network of sort of push and pull between like protests and, you know, enacting demands upon them and winning those demands seems to be a bit stronger than it is in Chile. Yeah, you're right. Uh, Political parties in Chile have almost no grassroots organizations. This is something, there's no connection. And um, they actually, political parties have been involved in corruption scandals. And people know this. And um, uh, the parties are very weak. And they just, you know, are in power because their rules allow it. But the people are very disaffected and actually political parties have less than 20% approval across the board. Uh, more closer to 10, uh, only that the right-wing parties are more uh, loyal and they uh, have more support for their parties. But basically parties are part of the problem. And the problem with um, Gabriel Boric is that uh, from the very beginning, he betrayed uh, his grassroots uh, so he was the the architect, uh, basically, of the constituent process, the failed constituent process that uh, pacted for a two-thirds supermajority to uh, to pass every article of the new constitution. This basically allowed the uh, right-wing coalition, which was in the minority, to veto everything that they didn't like. Um, and this, of course, was perceived as something uh, that betrayed the movement. Uh, then when uh, Gabriel Boric was uh, a candidate, he was campaigning against the TPP-11, the Trans-Pacific uh, uh, Trade Agreement, in which uh, Australia actually is in. And Australia is one of the um, the bigger biggest investors in mining resources in Chile. Okay, So uh, the TPP-11, what it does uh, is that the moment that you enter into the agreement, uh, if there are any changes in the regulations of the country, of the host country, uh, that basically uh, go against your your profits in a manner that could be damaging to your industry, then you can sue the country. And uh, instead of going to a court, uh, because the courts, international courts for this do not uh, exist yet, uh, they go to uh, private uh, arbitration, mediation, basically. And in these mediations, the, 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 the transnational has have a all to gain because basically the contract is there in black and white and the, and the judges or the mediators say basically how much does the country need to pay the company not if the country needs to pay or not basically uh, they don't weight human rights on one hand and the other the, the the interest of the of the corporations so Boric was campaigning against it. So he even wore a T-shirt to Congress when he was a deputy uh, that said no TPP-11. And he was um, 
put a viral video out saying basically that this agreement was against sovereignty and they were going to oppose it until the end and so on and so forth. So he, he gets elected. And at the moment he gets elected, he says, well, you know, if the Senate wants to approve the TPP-11, I will not stop them. So basically what happened is that in less than six months, the TPP-11 was approved and he ratified it and now it's law. Uh, so this was one of the things that was uh, a betrayal to the movement because basically we understand that uh, Chile, because it's all privatized and everything is in hands of transnationals, then transnationals have a claim in order to sue the country if we decide to basically, for example, nationalize water. If we want to materialize the uh, human right to water for the population, then we would need to pay companies because they are owners of rivers and, and uh, lakes and other you know bodies of water so uh, this is a huge problem and uh, the, the the government has just be ha has been behaving more like a right-wing government than like a left-wing government and the problem is that the coalition has the the communist party within so therefore there's nothing on the left of the government today so the government, and now today a neoliberal government, has no opposition virtually. Mm. And you, you do see that sort of problem, that contradiction um, that arose in the constitutional process. Like there's this desire to articulate these new social rights, right to water, shelter, other things considered very important by a lot of people. But there's no way to enact them without carrying out a transformative economic program, you know, boosting state capacity and revenues by nationalizing certain industries, natural resources, you know, like lithium, which Chile is so rich in. Do you think that failure to persuasively articulate real material um, transformations to regular people contributed to that failure of the constitution? Because they, after the Boric government compromise, there was no sort of path for people to see that real transformative economic change would happen. Yes, I think there was a failure of um, engaging with a class narrative that would tap into this the need for nationalizing industry in order to provide for human rights. And there was uh, too much of, I would say, cultural rights and gender rights, and they're, they're great, they need to be there, but they are not connected to the productive matrix of you know, society uh, which uh, reproduces this um, neoliberal system. So therefore, in order to change the reality of the country, you really need to have more resources. And for that, either you nationalize industry or you tax the rich. And uh, this is a direct attack on the oligarchy. So therefore, you, you could see that um, that would have a lot of pushback. So even the uh, so-called left-wing parties in Chile are very uh, always worried about upsetting, basically, the oligarchy and uh, corporations. Uh, so they always uh, will choose to take uh, measures that are uh, reformist and uh, marginal instead of changing, really transform, engaging in transformative change. There was a rhetoric about transformation, but at the end, it was uh, all about a uh, reform. And today is just uh, a cosmetic uh, makeover, I would say. Uh, we, uh, President Boric, uh, initiated a new constituent process uh, lately. <laughs> uh, that is a constituent process that is not really democratic. 
uh, that is, uh, I would say, the dream of the right-wing coalition. He agreed to all the right-wing coalition's uh, uh, points uh, in how the constituent process needs to be. And the most probable thing is that the constitution that will be uh, the result of this, I would say, oligarchic process uh, will uh, be a, constitu a constitution that is very similar to the one that we have now, but without the uh, baggage of being uh, have been written and approved during a dictatorship. It will be a formally democratic constitution written in democracy, but it will be the same, have, will have the same core uh, principles that the current constitution and therefore will not allow for the dismantling of the system. However, President Boric is very keen into being becoming the president of the new Chile, of the new democratic Chile that will be ruled by a new democratic constitution. And he has said that he wants to sign that constitution no matter what. To wrap up today, Camila, I want to ask what's next for the social movements of Chile? You know, after such time and effort invested by regular people in these new radical and forward thinking forms of democracy and change, to see it fail and then to see the new constitutional process being put forward by Boric being so watered down. How do you overcome that sort of feeling of defeatism? Or are the people resilient? You know, Do they see this as a step back, but one in a longer battle? Well, it's hard to tell. Uh, after the result, the rejection of the draft constitution, there was a lot of depression going on. Uh, the people in the movements were desperate. Uh, they, they went home for a while. And then they started calling frankly, frantically, basically saying, well, we need to get back, but we don't have the energy. There was a lot of uh, disappointment and uh, also uh, being uh, frozen, basically, that you cannot really move uh, and get together. There's no energy. And this has been going on for a while. Uh, there's no interest in participating in the new process. There's an interest to boycott. Uh, there's an interest of going out uh, to uh, reject the new the new process. Uh, however, the repression of the social movements in the streets is as brutal as it was before. Uh, so there is a lot of fear that uh, nothing will change and um, it, it would only be you know bad consequences. Uh, uh, what happened, uh, at least uh, on my end, on, on the cabildos that I work with and the organizations that I work with, there was um, going back to basics. So instead of uh, focusing on the political system, which is foreclosed, um, now people are focusing on survival. So uh, organizations of uh, mutual aid uh, are flourishing. Uh, even in, in, in a crisis, in, in a nutritional crisis, basically people do not have enough to eat. Uh, so uh, there are thousands of uh, ollas comunes, the common pots, uh, in which uh, basically the women uh, of poor neighborhoods get together to cook together and pool resources, uh, do kind of a, a donation-based uh, cooking, and then feed uh, the neighborhood basically for free. And this is something that is happening and people are organizing around that uh, of kind of being uh, self-sustaining at uh, creating uh, communities outside of the state, outside of the government, and not engaging really in politics because politics is just a dead end. So I would say uh, that uh, uh, this kind of process takes more time. However, I think it is a solid, a solid space in a way from where to build. 
because uh, politics and uh, material conditions come together. Uh, and and it's, the, it's from those organizations that are so basic that are there to take care of the community where uh, new uh, institutions and new forms of struggle uh, can come out uh, that could be really autonomous from political parties uh, and could um, in the long run change the uh, civic culture of Chile, which is very important. I don't know what's going to happen in the in the uh, short term, but I would say that this is a change of mentality uh, in which this is, the system is perceived as rigged and that a, uh, an, an alternative uh, society is possible uh, at the local level. Yeah, it's good to know there's still hope and a solid potential foundation on which to build on. And I guess if there's anything that the history of South America tells us, it's that defeats happen, but it's never over. You know, power can be won back. We've been talking to Dr. Camila Vergara, theorist, historian, journalist, and I think we can say activist as well from Chile, who followed closely the events the last few years. Camila, thanks for joining us today. And um, where can listeners maybe follow your work or keep up to date with what's happening in Chile if they're interested? I write regularly for the New Left Review. They have a blog called Sidecar, um, and I've been writing there. I'm actually finishing a piece now. And uh, I, I'm also active in Twitter, um, Camila underscore Vergara. I am always uh, tweeting not only about Chile, but also, for example, now Peru. Uh, Peru is undergoing a kind of a similar process. Um, about uh, you know uh, the ousting of of the president by an oligarchic congress and the people asking for uh, a constituent assembly, uh, so you can follow me there and also on YouTube. Um, my YouTube channel is Philosopha Plebeya, Plebeian philosopher, uh, and I have and actually I had a, a YouTube class on the constituent process and the constitution uh, going on for uh, around a year and a half. So if you're uh, curious and interested about constituent processes and constitution making uh, in Spanish, you can um, watch me there. Thank you.